It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Let me just read you one paragraph from the Time cover story on Elon Musk. His companies have faced allegations of sexual harassment and poor working conditions. In October, a federal jury ordered Tesla to pay $137 million to a black employee who accused the automaker of ignoring racial abuse. The businesses have also been fined for numerous regulatory violations. The feds are probing Tesla's autopilot software, which has been involved in an alarming number of crashes with parked emergency vehicles resulting in injuries and death. The company's expansion in China required cozying up to its repressive autocrats. As a result, ladies and gentlemen, da-da-da-da, we name Elon Musk Time's Person of the Year. Uh, look, it's to Time's credit, I guess, that the article has a lot of negative information about Elon Musk. I've always been fascinated by this guy. Very, very successful, a visionary in many ways. Uh, Tesla and its technology, SpaceX, has transformed space travel with the reusable rockets. And yet at the same time, he is this, you know, quirky zillionaire. I'm sure the fact that he's the world's richest man didn't have anything to do with his selection by Time. Often making trouble for himself on Twitter, in fact, it was a whole SEC investigation and a settlement where he had to give up his position as Tesla's chairman of the board because of he tweeted about Twitter stock in a way that you're not supposed to do. Um, so it's actually more interesting than the typical. And you know, who else was time going to give it to? Biden got it last year. They we're going to give it to Trump again. And, of course, I have to add the caveat that Time always says this is not the most heroic person of the year award. It is the person who had the most impact. And, yes, Hitler once got it and Stalin once got it. But, look, what this really is about is Time generating clicks and magazine sales. And I think that might work. Hey, you know, with Mehmet Oz running for the Senate in Pennsylvania, uh, CNN's Michael Smirkanish uh, said uh, yesterday, I guess, on his radio show, that he had bumped into Oz and said, I'd really like to get you on my program, and I will treat you with dignity and respect. But Oz said no. He proceeds to say to me, says Smirkanish, I can't possibly do that because it upset everybody at Fox, and I'll come on your show after the primary. Meanwhile, uh, Dr. Oz picking a big fight with the Philadelphia Inquirer because the Philadelphia Inquirer will not call him Dr. Oz. And look, I mean, that's how everybody knows him, Dr. Oz. Everybody knows the name Mehmet. But it's not, and he says, papers trying to silence me. Well, that's not the case. Newspapers have style guides. And the inquirer's style is that nobody's called a doctor, including medical doctors. It's Mr. So-and-so. So they will call him Mehmet Oz, Mr. Oz, Senate candidate. Is that some kind of insult? Is that some kind of conspiracy to knock down his candidacy? Not if it's the same rule that applies to everybody else. All right. Let's, we got a lot of ground to cover here. So, story number one. Told you I would bring back the buzzers. Um, House committee yesterday, the January 6th committee, voting to hold Mark Meadows in criminal contempt for refusing to comply with a subpoena. Now, everybody could see this coming. There's no shock to this. But nevertheless, if you take a step back, it is kind of an eye-opener because Mark Meadows was a member of Congress, because Mark Meadows was cooperating with this committee. Uh, he had turned over thousands of documents, including cell phone uh, records, which we'll get to in a moment. And the panelists say, look, it's a Democratic-dominated committee, plus Liz Cheney, uh, get that, um, two Republicans appointed by Nancy Pelosi. Uh, members of the committee, according to the Washington Post, 
used information already provided by Meadows to make the case that he's a key figure in understanding what Donald Trump did or did not do in terms of attempting to overturn the Electoral College results. Uh, so here's uh, Benny Thompson, the Democratic chairman. History will not look upon you as a victim. History will not dwell on your long list of privilege claims or your legal sleight of hand. He was saying this rhetorically, not just to Meadows, but to others, uh, you know, like Steve Bannon and a former DOJ Trump official who are defying these uh, subpoenas. Um, so as everybody remembers, you know, it was a couple of hours into the Capitol riot on January 6th of this year when Trump finally put out a video. It was about 4 o'clock Eastern, uh, calling for his supporters to abandon their attack. And I'll never forget this when, when this came out because it was he kind of praised them at the same time he was asking them to stand down. This was a fraudulent election. Okay, so that shows you where he's coming from. But we can't play into the hands of these people, Trump said. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. Here he is addressing the people who, you know, smash windows, breach the barricades, some of them, you know, beating up on police officers. You see what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel, but go home and go home in peace. So also one of the new things that's come out here is this 51-page report. This was on Sunday night. Showing that Meadows said, there was this quote, maybe it's out of context, I don't fully know. The National Guard, quote, would be present to protect pro-Trump people on January 6th. The report laid out the case for a contempt vote, highlighted details from documents that Meadows and his lawyer turned over to uh, the investigation before his decision to invoke executive privilege and not cooperate. So a lot of people are saying, well, is the reason the National Guard didn't come? Remember, there were desperate attempts by congressional leaders to get the National Guard over to the Capitol at a time when it could still do something. By the time it arrived, the riot was over. And, you know, was it bureaucratic slowness? Was it that military leaders were concerned about the optics? Uh, you know, at that point, who gives a damn about the optics? All right, number two, a uh, very big media story involving several Fox News hosts who were texting Mark Meadows at the time. Allow me to read this to you. Uh, this is from Laura Ingram texting Mark Meadows on January 6th. Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy. Brian Kilmeade, co-host of Fox & Friends. Texting Meadows, please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished. Sean Hannity, can he make a statement? Ask people to leave the Capitol. Now, um, first of all, I got to pause here and say that they did the right thing. They were using whatever influence they had and whatever relationship they had with Mark Meadows to try to get President Trump to do the right thing to speak out, to tell his supporters to leave, to stop the violence. And, you know, they're getting beat up in the press today. And I understand they're big figures. They're fair game. People are saying, hey, look, they said this in text, but on their shows they said this. Okay. Um, but would it have been better if they had texted Meadows and said, well, this is great? I mean, they were trying to stop the violence. Uh, another person texting Meadows was Donald Trump Jr., 
trying to get his father to intervene, to do something to stop the violence. Now, Hannity, on, for example, on his show that night, said today's perpetrators must be arrested and prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Uh, he said, I don't care if it's the radical left, radical right. Uh, I don't know who these people are. They're not people I would support. So how were officials not prepared? we got to answer that question. How did they allow the Capitol building to be breached in what seemed like less than a few minutes? That's still a question that resonates with me today. Now, I just think this reflects, uh, it's kind of like Chris Wallace leaving Fox, which I talked about yesterday, which I talked about on my show on Sunday. Um, and so rather than say, wow, this guy had a great 18-year career and good for CNN, plus that uh, he's going to join the streaming service, you know, lots and lots of people use it as a way to attack Fox. Well, Chris Wallace, you know, couldn't stand it anymore, so now he's going to CNN. Um, and I, I, what I said on my show was that um, I think he is the best interviewer in the television business, largely because he is so well-prepared. And I said that... Um, as any journalist knows, he is equally tough on Democrats and Republicans, no matter what the partisans say. Because I know he's gotten a lot of flack from pro-Trump partisans who think, you know, he, they don't like the way he handled the 2020 debate, or they don't like the fact that he's done some tough interviews with Donald Trump, kind of glossing over the fact of all the tough interviews he's done with Democrats over the years. So then there was a headline in the media, you know, Kurtz takes swipe at Wallace critics. Well, yeah, it was, uh, let's see, it was five words just saying, don't listen to the noise from people who are trying to denigrate Chris Wallace. Anyway, um, it's come out. It's getting a lot of coverage. I do think when you read the, the details of those texts, um, look, it's a free country. People can criticize, but each one of those people, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Brian Kilmeade, was trying to get Meadows to get his boss to do something, to intervene, to and, and saying, look, he's destroying his legacy. Now, if you want to say they didn't go on TV and then say, hey, Donald Trump has destroyed his legacy, okay, how many people out there, not just in the media world, um, say publicly what they would say privately to somebody they perhaps consider sympathetic or an ally on text? Um, again, have at it. Everybody's entitled to say what they want. But in this particular case, these opinion hosts, and that's what they are, opinion hosts, they did the right thing. They tried to get Donald Trump to intervene to stop a riot that was an attack on our democracy. And by the way, it wasn't only then. I remember the other day seeing Garrett Hake, he's a Capitol Hill reporter, MSNBC, saying... You know, he texts Meadows all the time. So he says, he says a lot of reporters have Meadows' uh, cell phone number, and Meadows apparently was pretty responsive to a lot of reporters. Um, so he said he texts him all the time. And now Jake Sherman, MSNBC contributor, co-founder of Punchbowl News, um, he has kind of outed himself after the committee put out this stuff, saying here, here is what I texted Mark Meadows on January 6th. One, we are under siege at the Capitol. Two, they have breached the Capitol. Three, Mark, protesters are literally storming the Capitol, breaking windows on doors, rushing in. Is Trump going to say something? And then the last of his five texts to Mark Meadows on that day, we are all helpless. It was a scary, bleeping time. It was. And I still think to this day, 
it could have been so much worse, especially if not for the bravery of a few courageous Capitol Police officers who diverted one group of protesters um, from where members were hiding, uh, or the Senate chamber at one point, or was it the House chamber, excuse me. Uh, and, you know, we are lucky that we didn't end up with a lot of dead lawmakers. You all remember the hang Mike Pence chants. So, you know, the, to the extent that this has become political game playing, partisanship, I've talked about this before, I talked about it on my show Sunday, it's just a shame. It's just a shame that the country can't come together. And I'm not saying, you know, the Democrats who dominate this committee don't have some partisan motives to make Trump look bad. And I'm not saying that the Republicans who are either not cooperating or denigrating the committee as, you know, uh, a witch hunt uh, don't have some partisan motives. You know, we live in a political system. But this was one of the worst days in our country's history. And as memories have faded of just how bad it was, I think the urge to speak about this only in a partisan way has intensified. And I think the media are part of that. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three, I'm going to do the first of two segments now on COVID because there's a lot of stuff going on in COVID. And I'm going to kind of back into it here. Uh, by talking about Billie Eilish, who, by the way, I've heard a couple of her interviews, and I, I really like her. She's she's raw and honest, um, you know, extremely poised for a uh, a young and tremendously successful performing artist. Um, she told Howard Stern in an interview yesterday that she was sick with COVID nineteen for nearly two months this year. It was bad, she said. I didn't die, and I wasn't gonna die. But that doesn't take away from how miserable it was. I mean, it was terrible. I still have side effects. I mean, I was sick for like two months almost. I want it to be clear that it is because of the vaccine that I'm fine, says Billie Eilish. I think if I weren't vaccinated, I would have like died because it was bad. When I say it was bad, I mean more than just that it felt horrible. But really, in the scheme of COVID, it was not that bad. You know what I mean? When you're sick, it feels effing horrible. Now, that will slide me into um, a couple of pieces in The Atlantic magazine. Uh, So let's make this number four. Uh, The first piece I'm going to talk about has to do with uh, Generation Z. I don't know exactly what constitutes Generation Z. You know, the demographers make up these. Well, if you were born between this year, it's like for baby boomers, uh, it was between 1946 and 1964. So I guess if you're born in 1965, you're not a boomer. I mean, obviously, it's a somewhat arbitrary nature. But basically, the point of this piece, it starts out with a uh, college student of Virginia named Taylor Robertson, is that Gen Z, these younger people, um, are basically trying to go back to their normal lives and they're blowing off COVID. Uh, So for a year, like many, many, many millions of college students, uh, uh, Taylor Robinson had only virtual learning. Well, now he's back in class. His college has a vaccine and an indoor mask mandate. And almost everyone he knows is living a, quote, normal life. His parents' house was full this Thanksgiving. He's gathering with family again this winter at a ski resort. Uh, He's quoted as saying, people don't want to talk about COVID anymore. It's not just a thing. It's just not a thing that people enjoy doing, really. What is there to talk about with it that isn't just a drag from the rest of the life that we want to be getting on with? Uh, This, says the Atlantic writer, echoes a feeling that has permeated the minds and lifestyles of many young people who have 
missed out on experiences, friendships, and milestones over the past two years of COVID disruption. And you can see why they, that generation would be particularly vulnerable because it's a time when you know, you're dating and the whole experience of going to college. Um, for these cohorts of Gen Zers, oh, um, they're once again learning and working in person. They're dining, drinking, and dancing indoors. They're traveling and celebrating birthdays and holidays, and they don't have plans to stop anytime soon. Omicron variant be damned. They just aren't as worried. Part of the response comes from pandemic fatigue. But much of this feeling is a result, says this piece, of the new risk calculus they have developed for how they want to live their lives. So here's a guy identifying only as Jacob, 23 years old, living in Baltimore. To be honest, if anything, I feel like I fall into the mindset of I am vaccinated, so I'm just going to like do me. Uh, other young people says they haven't even kept up with the COVID news. They're worried about final exams, job applications, seeing their friends, the holidays. They want to take trips and go to concerts. Uh, the one through line, the Atlantic says, is a sense of exhaustion with pessimistic news and disgust at the idea of more isolation. I totally get that. Uh, and by the way, according to an AP survey, nearly half of Gen Zers say the pandemic has made their educational and professional goals harder to achieve uh, and has strained their ability to make and sustain friendships. I get it, everybody's just on FaceTime, right? So that's been their approach. Now, the only problem with that, and I get it that younger people, especially vaccinated younger people, you know, are, are going to have mild cases if they do get the virus. Um, but we can't lose sight of this grim milestone that America just passed, which is 800,000 people have died of COVID-19. I, I just have to pause for a second and just reflect on the enormity of that number. Remember when it was like 10,000 and... 50,000 and somebody would come out and say, I think it's going to reach 100,000. And people would say, oh, no, that's totally alarmist. And then, you know, the, inevitably, as a combination of the deadly spread of this virus, uh, the fact that there was no vaccine in 2020, and, of course, now we have 40% of the country still unvaccinated, you know, the death toll, 800,000 Americans. So this other Atlantic piece uh, is written by a guy who lives in rural southwest Michigan. And he comes out and says, I don't know how to put this in a way that will not make me sound flippant, but no one cares about COVID. Literally speaking, I know it isn't true because if it were, the articles wouldn't be commissioned. So he's saying, yeah, some people care. But outside the world inhabited by, this is interesting, by the professional and managerial classes in a handful of major metropolitan areas, many, if not most Americans, are leading their lives as if COVID is over. And they have been for a long time. He says, look, you know, in my county, you know, there, there are statistics showing a, hosp a lot of people have been hospitalized. Uh, of course, a lot of people are always hospitalized this time of year. He says, I don't mean to deny COVID's continuing presence. Uh, okay, so for his county, I don't know that he names it, seven-day average of positive tests is as high as it has ever been. And the 136 deaths in that county attributed to the virus since June 2020. So he's not a COVID denier. He's not an anti-vaxxer. He's just saying, look, we have decided to live our lives. What I wish to convey is that the virus simply does not factor into my calculations of those of my neighbors who have been foregoing masks, tests, unless work impose them, imposes them, 
in which case they're just shrugged off as the usual BS from human resources and other tangible markers of COVID-19's existence. Um, my, most of my fellow, I am closer, this guy says, to most of my fellow Americans um, than the people almost absurdly overrepresented in media and elite institutions who are still genuinely concerned about the virus. Well, let me just pause there and say, look, I actually appreciate this speech because I want to know the mindset of a lot of people out there. He doesn't get into the people who are vaxxed and people who are not vaxxed. Um, and I guess it's okay to say, okay, I'm going to live my life. All of life involves a certain amount of risk. I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, especially if you're vaccinated and you've done what you can do. Uh, I understand the, the, the mental and psychological toll of, you know, we're in, go, heading toward the two-year anniversary of a pandemic that includes basically a year to a year and a half of shutting down. Um, I mean, I went to my daughter's choir concert the other night, and the music director there just must have said five times, it's the first time in two years uh, that we have been able to do something like this in public. So, you know, younger people, not to mention old people, have been deprived of a lot. Um, but I don't know, is there a certain amount of denialism in what this guy's writing, or is he just saying, hey, look, you clowns in Washington and New York and Los Angeles and you people in the media who you're professional warriors and it's your job, I know, to give us all the pessimistic news. Um, you're out of touch. Most of America is getting back to normal. He goes on to say that uh, I came away from this experience with the impression that whatever their value, masks long ago transcended public health and became a symbol. Not unlike in this house, we believe in signs, excuse me, not unlike in this house, we believe signs or MAGA hats. So that's the point of view. You can decide for yourself. I mean, if you live in an area that doesn't have a mask mandate, then you're not required to do it. Um, D.C., for example, at the moment, I, I bet it's coming back because everybody's predicting now with the spread of Omicron, which hasn't really hit the U.S. in full force. I guess the first Omicron death that we know of was reported in the U.K. the other day. Um, and the good news is, for all of the media and scientific freakout over Omicron, it does seem, in fact, to be a relatively mild version of the virus. Doesn't mean you want to get it, um, but it does mean that I guess a lot of people who get it, if, they, if their symptoms indeed are mild, and, you know, it's still fairly early, I guess they'll develop immunity, and that would be a good thing for the country. But it just seems to me that it ain't over, and we're going to go through a tough winter, and anybody who's not vaccinated ought to think more about that. I do think Omicron has scared more people, the numbers showing that the number of newly vaccinated people are somewhat up, plus people are going out and getting their boosters, which is getting to be a hard thing to do if you, uh, in other words, a lot of the pharmacies and supermarkets are, are again, filled with appointments and you got to wait or you got to go a further distance from your house. But one other bit of good news here that I just want to mention is Pfizer coming out now and saying that its pill, something you can take after you contract COVID, is wor working against the Omicron variant. And Pfizer says if you take this pill within three days of getting symptoms, it's called 
Paxlovid, who names these things? Who can even pronounce this? Okay, uh, the Pfizer pill reduced the risk of hospitalization and death by 89%. If you take it within five days of getting the symptoms, the risk was reduced by 88%. So that, in a way, especially given the, the sizable chunk of Americans that do not want to get vaccinated, at least now there's a treatment. You get it, you take this pill, even if you got the Omicron or you got the Delta variant, it does seem to be pretty effective. And so it doesn't mean that we should ignore it. Um, I still believe that anybody who can get vaccinated should get vaccinated. It breaks my heart every time I read about, I just read the other day, uh, some guy died from COVID and his wife had fought a legal battle so he could be treated with ivermectin. I'm not against ivermectin, but there's nothing better than vaccines right now. Um, but I'm glad there's a pill, and I hope that other of these major pharmaceutical companies will also produce pills as well. All right, number five. It's funny, when I, um, I was thinking about the podcast last night, I said, you know what? I'm going to talk about this elusive Build Back Better bill. And I'm going to say it's like Groundhog Day. Because remember when finally, after months of the infrastructure bill being held hostage, President Biden was finally able to get the House progressives to back down and agree to pass the bill, which was a genuine bipartisan achievement of the kind that many people said, you know, you just cannot do in the 2020s. Uh, But the deal was, well, then, you know, they will make a deal with the so-called Democratic centrists and they will pass this what was a three and a half trillion dollar bill, which was a ludicrous overreach but would be something around one and three-quarter trillion dollars. And this is the thing, you know, that nobody's ever been able to kind of pigeonhole child tax credit pre-kindergarden. Let's see, a lot of climate change stuff in there. Also um, dealing with uh, Medicare expansion and all that. And I knew that once this compromise was reached, exactly what would happen would be happening now. Here we are. It's December 14th, and I'm still seeing headlines saying, Chuck Schumer hopes to have a a, a vote by Christmas. And the reason, basically, is Joe Manchin. It's almost like, and it's like Groundhog Day, like every day. This has been going on for months. Well, Joe Manchin thinks, well, I don't know. Well, Joe Manchin says he might be willing to do this, but he's not sure. It's like Joe Manchin, and I'm I'm not disrespecting him. He's entitled to fight for his position. But it's like Senator Manchin is the president of the United States and Joe Biden is the Senate majority leader. Because in a 50-50 Senate, and even without that, I mean, it's famously said of the United States Senate that it's 100 members, each of whom possesses a nuclear weapon. Well, Joe Biden, uh, excuse me, Joe Manchin, who comes from a coal state and his family is, was in the coal business, I think has already successfully laid down markers on what he wants out of the bill. I think family paid leave may be out. The reason that nobody can even really focus on this is, you know, stuff is in, stuff is out. Uh, free community college is out. But is this going to pass at all? So it just so happens that yesterday, and I saw it this morning, Joe Manchin, you know, talking to reporters in the hallway, said he's still skeptical about this bill. Skeptical, excuse me. He talked to President Biden yesterday. Both sides said, you know, this was a good and positive uh, decision. And Manchin said what he always said, and here's the quote. People have been in a hurry for a long time to do something, but I think basically we're seeing things unfold that allow us to prepare better, and that's what we should do. In other words, what Manchin said last June 
What Manchin said in September and what Manchin is saying now is, what's the rush? And the reason he can say that is he doesn't care if this bill passes. He's under a lot of pressure from his party and his president, but he'd be just as happy. He doesn't really think we need to spend a couple of trillion more dollars after spending two trillion in the COVID relief bill, another one trillion on infrastructure. Economy seems to be bouncing back. Doesn't mean a lot of people still aren't hurting, but as inflation is at 6.8%. Unemployment is down to 4.2%. Uh, and he's worried about that. In fact, Manchin's called the current inflation trend alarming. And whatever we're considering doing, or whatever Congress is considering doing, they should do it within the limits of what we can afford. Now, is there a lot of impatience about this? Yeah. Here's Elizabeth Warren, for example. Uh, there's nothing more to be gained from talk. We have talked and talked and talked. It's time to make some final decisions and vote. But when you talk about final decisions, and the reason that I, I think this Christmas deadline is probably going to come and go, and that's a big deal because, you know, once we get into next year, everybody's going to be thinking midterms. I think if the Democrats don't come to some kind of compromise by the end of the year, I think the chances for this ever-passing drops precipitously. And so they're still trying to write the thing. Senate, and we don't even have a final bill, so of course nobody can say. So, for example, Senate Finance Committee uh, did release some text of, you know, part of the legislation. Because, you know, nobody can be expected to vote on it if you know what the hell is in it. But what was left out is a pretty major thing. It's called SALT, which stands for state and local taxes. Under Trump, uh, and this is something that, that hurt the blue states the most because they tend to be the highest tax states, um, there was a cap put on, I think $10,000, for what you could deduct from your income taxes based on your state and local income taxes, what you could deduct from your federal tax returns. Uh, Biden and the progressives very much want that repealed, in part because, you know, it hits their base the hardest because taxes are much higher in New York and California, for example, uh, than they are in Mississippi and Alabama. And I could name a bunch of other states, Texas, Florida, whatever. So they couldn't even work that out because if you do that, then that takes more money away from the government because people will be entitled to these larger deductions. Then you get into the question of how you're paying for this. I don't know. It just seems to me it's kind of like Donald Trump and Obamacare. You know, they're so close. They're within one vote. But that one vote in, in, on, on the third try with Trump, it was John McCain. This time it's Joe Manchin. He is again in no rush. There's two weeks to go. They're all going to want to go home for Christmas. Maybe they pull the rabbit out of the hat. Maybe they don't. I, for one, am kind of sick of talking about it. I think the country isn't even focused on it. People, Many people don't even know what is in this bill, which is understandable. It's just become this boring beltway process story. But a lot is on the line. You know, if Biden had never gone there or gone with a much, much smaller bill, Maybe don't try to do everything at once if you're a Democrat. Maybe just do climate. Maybe just do Medicare. Maybe just do pre-K. But when you put it all into this gigantic thing, it's a very big target to shoot at. He could have declared political victory after the infrastructure bill. It could have passed much sooner if he had perhaps played his cards right. And then now everybody would be sitting around saying, gee, why is Joe Biden's approval rating you know, down in the high 30s or low 40s? Uh, he can't get his own party to do what he wants. Uh, it's an awful political situation for him. And so with COVID and with the economy rocky, I would say, although, again, there are a lot of good indicators that he doesn't seem quite able to talk up, 
his presidency seems to be in trouble. The New York Times has a whole piece today about, well, you know, everybody says Biden's going to run. Uh, what if he doesn't run? Who would be in line? I'll talk about that some more, maybe tomorrow. Uh, thank you for listening once again. We very much would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast. Apple iTunes is one place you can do that. We'll see you tomorrow with more Buzzbeat. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.